Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon. Earlier this month, Michael Keynes, an editor at the TLS who will be familiar to regular listeners, chaired a lively discussion on a matter understandably rather close to our hearts here. Are authors, reviewers and publicists wasting their time on book coverage? How much does any of the criticism and noise around a book help in the vital business of shifting copies? So here's Michael Keynes steering a crucial conversation about the conversation around books. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming along. We're here to talk about the book business and the book conversation, which in my mind has shrunk to be ready to groan, the book biz and the book buzz. That's pretty bad, isn't it, I think? And we're going to be talking, I think the title I actually set for us was The Book Business. Are authors, reviewers and publicists simply wasting their time pursuing book coverage that might not help sell any books? If you can ever capture, can you ever capture that elusive beast, word of mouth? And what exactly is the relationship between literary commerce and literary chat in all its various forms? Various forms meaning podcasts, literary festivals, book reviews, grumbling in pubs, like tonight. So first of all, I'd like to introduce Sarah Braybrook, who is Managing Director of um, Scribe UK, award-winning independent publisher. Their recent titles include Guts by Julia Enders, Mrs. Engels by Gavin McRae, and You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, You Are Raoul Moot, uh, Moot, Moot, by Andrew Hankinson. In 2017, Sarah was shortlisted for the Kim Scott Walwyn Prize and a London Book Fair Trailblazer Award, and in 2015, she was named a bookseller rising star. Uh, sitting just beyond Sarah is Nicholas Clee, joint editor of Book Brunch, an observer, reviewer, freelance journalist specialising in books and the book trade. He's also a successful author of nearly a dozen books. Uh, don't sweat the aubergine. There you go. That's one of them. I can remember that. Uh, and most recently wrote The Booker and the Best, which is a really excellent account. I can say that because I actually read it. A really excellent account of the literary world and of how books are judged. It's available as an Amazon Kindle single. So if you cross that line, go and cross it for that reason. Uh, and thirdly, we have Marion Rankin, a freelance writer and bookseller based in London. Her first book, excellent title, Broliology. Try saying that quickly. Broliology, a history of the umbrella in life and literature, was published by Melville House in November 2017. Her essays, reviews and features have appeared in the TLS, good paper that, The Guardian, Overland and Books Plus Publishing among others. Uh, please give a round of applause for our speakers, just to make them feel welcome. 
Thank you very much. I'm now going to pass the microphone to Sarah and ask her to talk about the um, eternal question for publishers. How do you get books in the public eye, get people talking about them, if it's possible to get them to talk about them at all? Uh, what works and what doesn't? Sarah. Well, I think the, an look, the answer to the, the question really about whether we're wasting our time or not is obviously no. Because if we weren't making an effort to promote our books, they mainly would sink without trace, which is not to say that they don't sometimes sink without trace, despite our best efforts, or hopefully leaving it to us a very small ripple at least. But I think the problem we have when we talk about promotion of books is that we all have terrible confirmation bias. We're always looking at the hits. We're always looking at the books that have won awards. We're always seeing books that are bestsellers. And then we're going, oh, amazing. This is brilliant. It must be easy to make books do this. Um, what we never see is the books that fail for whatever reason. They don't find their readership. They get coverage and yet they don't sell. They don't even get coverage. So I think that it's very, very hard, unless you're somebody like Michael or, or Nicholas, to be honest, who's actually got a kind of amazing panoramic view of the publishing landscape and hears about the things that don't work as well as the things that do. It's very hard to really create any kind of empirical you know, analysis saying you know, why books work, when they work, what you have to do, do these five steps, they'll work. I think in every case, when a book has become very successful, you can trace why it became successful. And some of the things that are most interesting to look at are the cases where people are going around going, it's amazing, it's just a rediscovered classic, it's a masterpiece. Someone just picked it up in an old shop and suddenly it was number one on the Sunday Times bestseller list. And they say things, this thing about things like Stoner and they say this about, oh, there's been, you know, Hans Fallader, um, who we published, in fact. Hurrah, go Hans. But, but that is not true they have not emerged from nowhere very very well thought through very very sophisticated strategies have been employed by brilliant publishers um usually much more brilliant than us you know we aspire to them to make it happen but it is also organic and it is also about getting a zeitgeist getting a response from people that's authentic and that's where word of mouth does come in that you can market something all you want you can pitch it so hard to all of the journalists you can even get that coverage you can get features you can get reviews it just does not necessarily mean a book will sell so I'm just going to give you a few concrete examples of different ways that things have panned out with some of our titles um, because I think that's they all illustrate different ways things can happen um, so one book is a book that um, Michael referenced called you could do something amazing with your life your around mode this came out a couple of years ago now um, it's a very unusual book it's a experimental work of non-fiction it's a biography um, basically of Raumote, who was a notorious murderer. He escaped from prison. He, well, he came out of prison, rather. He shot his former girlfriend and her new partner, killing him, and then he went on the run in Northumbria. And he became a bit of a folk legend. Now, when we acquired this book, I'm not going to lie, I thought our publisher might be a bit mad because it's such a weird, unusual book. It's based on cassette tapes that Moat recorded himself when he was on the run. Um, it's essentially a very intense picture of a violent breakdown from the inside and I just didn't really know what we would do with a book like this I couldn't think of a single book to compare it to when you're the publicist and you're doing your press release you like to write things like for people who loved x and I was like what does it for people who loved murder Malmote? no one loves Malmote, really um although actually some people some people weirdly do um including Gaza um 
but actually in the end this book had fantastic publicity and it was because people really was journalists really responded to what Andrew the writer was doing and they could see that he was doing something that was genuinely new and that was still had a huge amount of journalistic integrity to it they could see the moral complexity of it. Some of them found it morally actually very problematic, but they still wrote long, complicated pieces about it, um, which is all, you know, all we wanted. And that's a book where you couldn't have had more coverage. In the end, um, the sales were nothing stratospheric, but then for a book like this, they were probably the best they could possibly be. So I was very happy with that. And I, I don't think that we've got any sort of, I don't look at it and sort of say, oh, you know, we should have sold... 20 times as much because I think this book found its audience and that's our goal our goal isn't to make every book number one bestseller because you know that every book's different um I'll give you a counter example which is like a bit sad which is a, a beautiful amazing book called 1947 when now begins this is a book about the year 1947 this book came out at the end of last year perfect timing just before Christmas it's narrative history very well written. It's about 1947, the year that changed the world, essentially, um, and it has fantastic stories woven throughout. It's very well written. We spent a lot of money marketing it. We promoted it. We brought the author over to tour several times. Um, and despite throwing everything I could at this book, it was very, very hard to get the UK audience and the UK market to pay attention. Um, and it's not that easy to say why, but for whatever reason, I think it was a very competitive time of year. I think that it got mis miscategorized somewhat. It ended up in the kind of military biographies section, which is not where it should have been. Um, various reasons. It, it, it was really, really hard in a way that I didn't expect it to be. But it's coming out in paperback, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, but, you know, it had an anniversary to it and we had lots of things in place to try and support the book and it was just difficult to make it work. Um, and I'll give you just one more example, which is a bit more exciting and fun, which is this book, which is our best-selling title, Gut by Julia Enders. When our publisher said that he had required a book about the intestine by a completely unknown 20, I think, four-year-old German woman without reading it, because <laughs> it wasn't translated yet, he just, he'd acquired it at Frankfurt, I just looked and he said, oh, and by the way, it's got charming illustrations throughout. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, right, right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, tr I pitched it quite hard and didn't have a lot of interest, a bit of interest. People were interested because it was doing well in Germany and they thought that was weird. <laughs> That's not really what you want the basis of a promotional campaign to be based on. Um, and then I got one interview for Julia with Annalisa Barbieri, who's a writer for Guardian, very good writer. And what Annalisa did, which I didn't do, I didn't manage to do this myself, is she found the golden pitch. Like in, in, in lots of books, there's a golden pitch and you just have to find the pitch. Um, what was it? It was the fact that in the book, Julia talks about the fact that the way people poo is wrong. We poo wrong. In our Western culture, we don't have toilets which are well-designed for our bodies. And so she, Annalisa wrote this feature about, about it, and the headline on The Guardian was, Why You're Pooing Wrong. <laughs> and it immediately went viral. And I, I, after that, the book was an immense bestseller. It's our best-selling title. I think we've sold, I don't know, several hundred thousand copies. And... And that was a brilliant thing. And we, and we did lots of other things around it to support it. And, you know, we did promote it in other ways. You know, Waterstones got on board and made it Book of the Month. But 
that's an example of the alchemy that you need sometimes um, and the way you can't predict what will happen and the way that a really good journalist who finds that nugget that will, that will bring people to your book or, or if you're a publicist, you should try and do that. You know, um, Do I have time to give one more example? Okay, I don't want to talk too long, but the last one I wanted to mention is this book, which we have coming out in a few weeks' time. It's going to be serialised, in fact, in the TLS, so stay posted this is a beautiful book called insomnia by marina benjamin it's a memoir it's cultural history it's sort of fascinating exploration of sleeplessness and it's really really good and i've had loads of interest in this book and you know marina's a brilliant writer and she does have a following but at the end of the day this is a subject that so many people relate to one in three people suffers from insomnia so it's a really easy book to get people to connect with and we've designed it a certain way. You can see the production. You can see that we've put a lot of time and energy and, and, and money into the production of this book. That's another thing that's going to help it to succeed. Um, and then it's about looking beyond the book itself and looking around it. And that's why, for example, okay, for the TLS, maybe we're going to do a lovely literary extract, which I think was Danina's editing. Um, but then maybe for The Guardian, the pitch isn't, here's a lyrical examination of the history of sleeplessness maybe the pitch is sleep is a feminist issue why does insomnia disproportionately affect women you know so it's it's looking at books in ways that you're you're bringing an audience to them but you can't you can't just produce a book put it out in the world and go word of mouth do your thing i joined the bookseller in 1984 and since then uh, the book industry has become much more sophisticated at book marketing, and book awards have proliferated. Books, I think, are as much a part of the cultural conversation, perhaps more so, uh, than they were back then. And that's something of a triumph for the book trade, I think, that so many competing media books have done reasonably well. Um, so that's all good, but nothing is all good. There are some negative aspects of this. And one is that book promotion and the book prizes uh, take up more and more oxygen in the book trade. I'll just uh, illustrate that briefly by talking about an example of, uh, uh, from publishing. Um, a little while ago, I um, was speaking to someone from one of the conglomerate publishers about a first novel she had published that had been a tremendous success. Um, the book had created quite a bit of fuss when it was bought, and it was bought for a large advance. Nevertheless, that as any publisher here will know, doesn't guarantee success. Anyway, the publisher published it really well. Um, but she said the problem with that is that you can only do it for one book a year. And this was one of our very largest publishers. What she meant was uh, that the amount of effort that has to go into that from a publishing house the kinds of conversations you have to have with people. You have to say, if you only review one book of ours this year, make sure it's this one. Uh, the way you have to make a book appear special, can only be, you can't do that 
every other week. So I think this has exacerbated the gap between winners and losers in the publishing world. It's made... uh, It's meant that books that don't get recognised in a certain way uh, tend uh, to be starved of the oxygen I have described. In literary fiction and non-fiction, I think... What's happened since 1984, Lola Booker was huge then uh, and probably uh, has no greater effect now than it did then. Many other prizes have come along in the wake of the Booker and its success. Uh, The Whitbread, now Costa Awards, had existed for some time, but they became much more glitzy in a bid to emulate the Booker. We've had the Women's Prize for Fiction since then, um, the Goldsmith Prize, the Gordon Byrne Prize, the Bailey Gifford Prize, formerly the Samuel Johnson, many, uh, the Folio Prize, many others. Uh, if you publish uh, a literary work and don't get recognised for any of these lists, you're certainly... In- it certainly makes it much more difficult for you to gain attention. Uh, The one other thing I would say about this, just for the moment, is that because we're so enthralled to marketing and promotion, that means these things are often dictated by fashion. And certain kinds of books tend not to get a look in. I think in particular this is the case with a certain kind of fiction when it comes to literary prizes. And I'm not just talking about genre fiction, but uh, the the quiet domestic novel, the social satire, the regional novel of working class life and so on. Um, I think that... Uh, the um, the dominance of prizes in our literary culture has meant that these kinds of books are no longer quite regarded as expansive or ambitious or daring enough uh, to merit uh, the recognition of prizes. And I think we're undervaluing a lot of books for that reason. Anyway, I shall pass over to Marion. Um, I started working in bookshops in 2006, I think it was. Um, and um, when I did that, uh, the kind of really big thing in the conversation around books at the time was this. Um, the rise of ebooks, um, the kind of the threat to the printed word of of digitization, um, and there was there was a quite a, an extensive period of uncertainty um, where you know people felt that bricks and mortar bookshops were very much under threat, that paper books were very much under threat. Um, were we heading into a paperless future? Were we going to be reading forever on devices and? flicking pages with our fingers um, on screens rather than turning turning actual paper. Um, and 
something that has I've found really heartening as a person who loves the printed word on a page is that um, you know publishers I think really stepped up their game um, in response to this um, and really invested in making the book a very beautiful object. Um, and I think in some ways that's that's been a lovely thing to see because um, uh, the ways that advances in technology push us to improve um, technologies we already have, for example. Um, but one one other thing that I find really fascinating about um, sort of the collision between technology and the book, well, obviously there's, there's many such collisions, um, but um, when I started bookselling, um, we use Nielsen, um, and I never, I never experienced um, book sales without it. Um, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with Nielsen, but if anyone's not, it's um, it's the basically the tracking program that tracks sales um, and quantities of book sales. Um, and I remember reading an article a number of years ago that was written by someone who had been working in publishing long before Nielsen came to be. And the author was talking about the effect that that had had on um, book deals. Um, it used to be the case where a publisher would invest in an author for life or for, you know, five books or something. Um, and then once it became possible to actually quantify sales rather than going by, as we're saying, word of mouth... Um, once it became possible to sort of go, oh, you've sold exactly that number of books, um, it, it became a lot more numerically based. Um, I think in the past there was a lot more, I say I think because I wasn't there selling books at the time, but um, certainly this, this, um, the writer felt that um, they, there was, with the kind of imprecision, there, there was a lot more room for discussion and word of mouth conversation around books that now would probably, as you were saying, just sink without a trace. Um, and that, that's, that's, I think that's been a, a really interesting force working as a bookseller because um, when I worked at Foils, I was working as head of promotions, which meant I was very much dealing with um, sort of the front of house areas. Um, dealing with um, facts and figures, you know, I was I was going through sales sheets every every few days, just catching books that were suddenly spiking in sales, and making sure that we always had enough in stock. And there was always this real conflict. Obviously, um, I'm a writer; I review books, and there was this real conflict um, between the various hats I was wearing as a bookseller and as the as these as a kind of a more active participant in the literary world in other ways between this kind of numerical focus and this really driven numbers-based kind of approach, which you have to have to survive in the books business. Um, and, and the kind of the yearning to, to kind of promote other books as well. And, you know, as you were saying, the books, the books that sink, you feel it viscerally as a bookseller. There are probably booksellers in this room. And when you've got stacks of something that you thought was going to do really well and then you have to send them all back to the publishers, it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, and that's, that's, I think, where booksellers enter the conversation in a really, really interesting way, is that um, they provide another layer to the discussion. Um, you know, as, working in a bookshop, um, if you're in a general bookshop, then you've got a really good picture, and it, kind of an industry-wide picture of what's available, what all the different publishers are releasing. Um, and having that picture means that you kind of obviously you get a good sense of what's selling but because you're reading really widely um because you know customers think you've read every book in the shop 
Um, because you're re reading really wi widely, you get this, um, you know, you develop attachments to certain books. And, and if you come across something that's really, really good and it's just not getting the attention that you think it deserves, that's where, that's where you can step in and kind of stage a little intervention of your own, um, whether it's with staff picks or product placement um, or just really fervently recommending something to customers. Um, and we might talk about this later on, but um, for me, one of the most powerful things about working at Foils were the staff picks. Um, and there were books there that, that became really strong sellers um, in the UK industry because of the power of a staff pick at Foils. And I think that's just a really brilliant, um, really brilliant example of, of the way that... Um, you know, people at every single layer of the industry can can kind of intervene in in some ways, and um, intervene in the zeitgeist, as it were. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the." F are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks very much, Marin. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, so uh, just out of interest, uh, would you raise a hand if a staff pick in Waterstones or Foils or anywhere else has ever done it for you or you've been influenced by a book, Salah says, anyone been picked up a book and thought that looks good? So it would seem perhaps that clearly stands for the whole nation. I think we've decided um, Brexit and everything else just now. Great, it's not going to happen. Uh, so I think that's true there, isn't it? That, that actually at the shop end, book selling, what is put on display, what is featured by booksellers makes a huge difference. And as we've um, gone along this road, uh, we've tried to talk about different aspects of the trade. What's uh, the press get up to often under the influence of PR uh, what publishers are thinking as well but I, I won't I, I ask too many questions of us as a panel in a moment it is your turn all I would like to ask as a question for all of us uh, is that I suppose you mean you're here to talk about your expertise and your particular point of view on the book business where do you stand in terms of the conversation as in there's the composition of the book, there's its production, the point where it becomes something 
actually published and other people have their hands on it, editing it, taking out your favourite chapter. That's another story. Uh, and then there's the reception of the book. And obviously this is a kind of circle here that shapes what happens next. A lot of you will have seen uh, a little tweet by um, Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, uh, talking about the complaining about the number of parcels poor Sam was having to open. Uh, all the books he was happy seeing, all in the same genre. And I must admit, I see the same thing when I go into the TLS. We have a table of books and you know, you just see, oh, I think it's the year of X. You're a little tired of this, but you can completely understand why it is happening. So my uh, last question then for, for you three, really, the microphone passing along, is where do you stand in terms of the reception, how it shapes what you, what you do next? What's your place in, in the conversation side rather than the production side, the, the buzz rather than the biz? I mean, I think that... It's a very, it's a very personal process. It's very personal. And when, you, if you've ever sat in an acquisitions meeting or you've been on an email chain where someone wants to purchase a book, basically to publish, you know, at the end of the day, the thing that's making you want to publish a book is deep inside you. It is not because you have done a metric survey of the market and calculated that an uplift work of fiction featuring you know a woman who has a one-legged dog and lives in Brixton is the next best thing maybe there are publishers who publish like this but I I, I hesitate to believe it because there's a there's a core there's a kernel of of personalness sorry for the terrible abusive English language there's a there's something very very personal about books and in order for someone to be persuaded that they should pick up a book and have that quite intimate experience they have to feel it calling to something inside them okay sometimes that's something pretty specific and not necessarily that you know ethereal maybe they would just really like to know more about the french revolution you know or i just published a book called being an adult which is a guide to being an adult it's got lots of really practical stuff in it about renting a house and dealing with your taxes um but the way you know we published it was in a way that I think people will want to pick up and read because that's something that's affecting them and this is going to give them access to the information they need. So there's something inside you which makes you want to buy a book, whether you're a publisher who's buying a book to publish it or whether you're buying a book in a shop as a consumer. I kind of think it's the same thing. And um, the, te- the quality of the writing, the subject matter, the sense of relevance and urgency you know those those will be specific to the person and the thing that's difficult is that you we all live in our own bubbles essentially and we're all sitting alongside each other you know we don't see as publishers what michael and nicholas see which is the vast table of you know 28 books all about the french revolution all published you know in the year of the centenary you know we don't think like that we think that we're the only ones having those brilliant timely thoughts um so i think that I think about this subject of publishing strategy a little bit how I think about going into a bookshop and what I buy myself. When I buy books, which I try to do less of because it's very overwhelming how many books I own already. I'm sure everyone here is the same, but it's just the reading. There's so much. But there are these moments in my life where I, I can't stop myself and I, like, I'm uncontrollably driven to like go into a bookshop and just spend all this money I don't really have on all these books which I don't have time to read. And the things that make you do that 
you really pay attention you're like why why am I buying Sally Rooney's second novel on the day it's published even though like I don't need to I don't need to um or you're like you know why did I go and like buy this hardback edition of this new book by Emmanuel Carrere an author I've never read before you know in the LRB bookshop on my lunch break even though I've got so much more reading to do and those are things I did because I'd read something somewhere or someone had said something to me that just like rang a bell in my head I don't know, like maybe someone told me, yeah, Emmanuel Correa, he's just like Jeff Dyer, you'll love him. I love Jeff Dyer, so yeah, you know, or or maybe with Sally Rooney, there was just this, I don't know what it is, millennial compulsion, who knows. But there are these moments that you, that you feel that pull, and I think with publishing, there's an aspect of that. Even when you're publishing books that are relatively factual, relatively objective, I don't know, what, what do you think? You've written some of those books, Nicholas, so you, you probably know more than me about that. When I first spoke, uh, I gave a slightly gloomy view of the book trade. Uh, but for every trend, the, the, book, the British book trade publishes tens of thousands, where until hundreds of thousands of books each year. So everything you c- can describe as a trend can be uh, at least countered with further examples. For instance, if what I said was... In, uh, said was entirely accurate, you would expect the percentage of sales to be taken by the top titles to be going up and up. Yet I read in the bookseller at the beginning of the year that in fact the percentage of the market taken by the titles that are not bestsellers has held up and in fact slightly increased. I suppose uh, the... um, presence of Amazon in the market where everything is available has helped that. Um, And I think also when you look at bestseller lists, there's a hell of a lot of Me Too publishing. We all know how many psychological thrillers are being published at the moment. Yet weird and wonderful things still do get get through, Um, such as Gut, for instance. Uh, not every publisher is a conglomerate. Uh, there are still independents here ruled by uh, passion in what they do. And if their books work, they can sell hundreds of thousands of copies just as well as Penguin Random House can. So uh, I th- uh, to conclude, I think to generalise about the conversation about books is really quite hard. I'll pass you over to Marion. I would absolutely agree that generalising it is nearly impossible. Um, I've been trying to tease out all these different trains of thought all day um, to find out what I actually thought about this conversation. Um, And the answer is I don't know. Um, I think it's a, a, a very. I think it's an ecosystem essentially. Um, you know, it's it's the same way that if if Waterstones had indeed collapsed um, a few years ago when it seemed like it was on the edge, that would have actually been so terrible for the book industry as a whole. Um, and while it's easy for to, to sort of go, oh yay, down with the giants. Um, it's it doesn't work like that at all. You need you need the the kind of the pillars. The um, you need everything from the enormous publishers with a lot of um, financial clout and a lot of voice in the conversation, right the way down to the tiny indie presses. And I think everything because of the conversation that's being held, I think they all inform and sustain one another. One of the 
best things I think that's emerged around these conversations around books, particularly on social media, um, is an increasing the increasing amount of attention being paid to um, unconscious bias in the books industry, um, encouraging diversity, kind of really, really questioning um, why it is that um, certain voices have a lot more sort of um, primacy, primacy um, than others. Um, and that's that's where I think, you know, um, the Women in Translation Month... Um, um, that I mean, I believe that started on Twitter. Um, th- things like that that really that really kind of open up um, the way people think about the industry and really kind of question um, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, when I not long after I started at Foils, um, an author, um, Sophia McDougall, published a piece, um, sort of criticizing. She's a sci-fi fantasy writer, criticizing the enormous um, percentage of of, of um, books by male writers in in the in her section that she that she was published in, um, and that just sort of set me off on a on a um, on an unraveling um, quest to try to to try to figure out exactly um, what kind of bias were we perpetuating as booksellers. Um, and I started doing sort of me and my colleagues all sort of grouped together and started, you know, averaging out numbers of um, male and female writers on the bookshelves, um, paying real close attention to what we were choosing to recommend and why. Um, and it was really revealing. Um, and I think over the last few years, the conversation has really been able to turn um, in, in and it's because of the strength of just people talking about these things more, bringing it to, to everyone's attention. Um, so many publishers now have more in, more initiatives towards diversity and um, the books they publish, um, um, hiring decisions. Um, and um, I think that's just one of the most important and um, wonderful developments that I've, I've witnessed personally in the last few years. Okay, thank you. That is indeed great cause hope, isn't it? The diversity or our efforts to make the book trade more diverse. Uh, and then again, there's the sheer unpredictability of the whole business. A great deal to think about there, but we're well over time. So will you please join me in thanking our speakers and please stick around and have a drink. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thanks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.